into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Every sports team is going to succeed or fail based on whether the players on that team know the fundamentals of their sport. They can have all the talent in the world, they can be the most outstanding athletes, but they will fail to win championships if they do not emphasize fundamentals. The same principle is true of God's people. We may know God's word inside and out, backwards and forwards, but if we fail to emphasize some fundamental things, we're gonna fail in our desire to please God. When it comes to the question, what must I do to be saved? You'd think that was a pretty simple question to answer, wouldn't you? What must I do to be saved? The Bible says there are some things that are hard to understand in God's word. Second Peter 3.16 says that. Some things are hard to understand, but you would think that question's not hard. What must I do to be saved? Acts 16 verse 30, that's what the Philippian jailer asked. It is astounding how many different answers you will get to that question from religious people who follow or claim to follow Jesus Christ. It's astounding how many different ways people will answer the question, what must I do to be saved? I suggest to you this morning that God has given a clear plan for salvation. He has not been confusing or indistinct in what he said. And I also suggest to you this morning that baptism is the culmination of the process of an alien sinner, someone who has lost, someone who is outside of Christ. Baptism is the culmination of that person coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ and with his church. Baptism is essential. And we would part company with many of our religious neighbors on that one question alone but that's what the Bible teaches. And as those who would emphasize things that are fundamental, as those who would emphasize things that are biblical, doing Bible things in Bible ways and calling Bible things by Bible names, we as the people of God must never lose our sense of how people come to Christ. So lessons like this, the design of baptism they're essential for the church to hear and to hear repeatedly. Fundamentals are important. And not only that, I'm preaching this lesson because there are some of you who need to think about doing what we're talking today, talking about today. There are some of you who know the truth and you know you ought to obey the gospel and you know that Jesus Christ wants you to come to him. This is how you connect with God by repenting of your sins and being baptized. And you need to think about doing exactly what God has commanded you to do in his word. God wants all men to be saved. 
Let's talk about how that happens this morning. The design of baptism. In the first place, let's discuss the circumstances under which someone is baptized. Is this important? Absolutely it is. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 16, and I want you to look with me at verses 15 and 16. You see, baptism is not all that's involved in somebody coming to God. In Mark 16, beginning in verse 15, Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Before someone is ever baptized, listen to me, they must be taught. They must hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Baptism is always preceded by teaching. Every once in a while, someone will come and visit us in our assemblies and they'll say, I would like to be baptized. I'm thrilled and I know our elders are thrilled and people are thrilled when somebody says, I'd like to be baptized. One of the questions though is, what have you been taught? Because baptism is preceded by teaching. In Acts 2 verse 41, the scripture says that those who gladly received the words of the apostles were baptized. There was a receiving of God's word first. God said the characteristics of the new covenant. You know, the old covenant was first you're born, then you're taught. You were born a little Jewish boy, a little Jewish girl, and then as you grew up, you were taught the ways of God. It's reversed in the new covenant. In the new covenant, first you're taught, and then you're born. First, you're taught the word of God. I'll take my words and I'll write them on your heart. No one will have to say to you, know the Lord, because they shall all know me from the greatest to the least. Hebrews chapter eight, verses 10 and 11. That's the nature of the new covenant. Baptism is preceded by the teaching of God's word. People must learn the gospel. It's essential, go and preach the gospel. And then as you're looking at Mark 16, I want you to look at verse 16. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Notice that Jesus says, belief, agreement is essential. I must hear God's word and I can't just say, well, some of that is true, some of that I will listen to, but I'm not going to accept and receive all of it. You must agree with what God's word has to say. That's belief, that's faith. I agree, I submit, I believe that I am lost and that Jesus is the one who can save me. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Again, Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Before someone is ever ready to be baptized, they must be taught and they must believe what is being taught. They must believe it's true. Turn in your Bibles now to Acts chapter two and look at verse 38. Acts chapter two, verse 38. You know, one question that young preachers ought to, and older preachers too, ought to be able to answer. I believe Christians ought to be able to answer this question as well. Can you point out five or so passages in the New Testament that talk about baptism. Can you point out five or so passages that, that help me understand what baptism is and what it's for? It might astound you, it might surprise you how few are able to do that. In Acts chapter two, verse 38, on the day of Pentecost, the people stopped Peter in the middle of his sermon. They understood that they had murdered Jesus and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And notice Peter's answer in Acts two, verse 38. Look at what he says. Acts 2 verse 38, he says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Before one is ready to be baptized, 
he must repent. He must turn away from the sins and the sinful ideas and the sinful thoughts and the sinful rejection of God and his will. And he must say, I'm going to do God's will, God's way from now on. Repentance, it's essential. In 2 Peter 3 verse 9, the Bible says, God is not willing that anyone should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. Before we're baptized, we must repent of our sins. Baptism is preceded by confession. Look if you would with me at Romans chapter 10, and I want you to look at verses nine and 10. Romans chapter 10, verses nine and 10, and listen to what the writer says. Before someone becomes a Christian, before someone obeys the gospel and is baptized, he must confess the name of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Romans 10, verse nine. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. God's word teaches that we are to make the good confession. We are to say with our mouths, I believe that Jesus Christ is divine. He is God's son, and I want him to be the Lord of my life. We say that before others because that's the claim we're going to make. Baptism is preceded by confession. Biblically, baptism is always a burial in water. It always is. If you're in Romans, go back to chapter 6 and look at verse 4, a passage that Eric read just a moment ago. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, and the scripture says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Colossians 2 verse 12 likewise talks about being buried with Christ. Baptism is not just a sprinkling of a little bit of water on someone's head. It is not just a pouring of water over someone's head. Baptism is an immersion, a burial. And those passages and others like it suggest that the way God wants people to respond to him is to be submerged, to be immersed in water. Why? Because the water saves you? No, because we trust that what we're doing is obedient to God and to his will as stated in the scriptures. What must I do to be saved? God has not left himself unclear. The circumstances of baptism. Notice secondly this morning, the effects of baptism. What happens when a person is baptized? What kinds of things take place? I'd like to suggest this morning that in the first place, we become some things that we were not before. The Bible bears this out. When you're baptized, that's a dividing line. You become some things that you were not before. Let me suggest it this way. Baptism is an experience with God. And it's an experience with God that happens in space and time, and you can communicate the significance of that experience to other people. What I mean by that is, a lot of people, when you ask them, how were you saved? They will say, well, you know, I went to this retreat or I went to this big event and someone said, would you just bow your head and pray this prayer with me? And, and if you prayed that prayer, then you were saved. And, and so I started to pray the prayer and then 
you know, I, I felt different and I, I thought different and, and I know I was saved because all that happened. The problem is the Bible doesn't speak about conversion that way. Nobody in the Bible was converted to Christ that way. What happens in the Bible is when, when, when somebody suggests people need to be saved, they would counsel them to repent of their sins, to confess Jesus Christ and to be baptized. And people would come down into the water, maybe a river, maybe a pool somewhere. They would come down into the water, they would be immersed. And in that moment, they were having an experience with God. They were trusting in God to save them from their sins. And when they came back up out of that water, they were something new, they were something different. And the Bible teaches that that is exactly what happened to them. The first thing they become, you and I become, when we obey the gospel, when we're baptized, we become a New Testament Christian. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 12 through 17 suggests that we are not followers of any man. I'm not follower of Paul or of, of Peter or of Apollos. I'm not following anybody individually and I'm not wearing their name. I am a follower of Christ because Christ died for me and Christ is the one into whose name I was baptized. We become just a Christian. No other name, no other title is necessary, just a Christian, a New Testament Christian. I was not one before I was baptized. I became one when I was. Secondly, we become members of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 says, by one spirit you are all baptized into one body. Oftentimes people will ask the question, how do I join the church? We, we, we like what is happening here at Katy. We, we like some of the friendships that we've made and how do we join? You can't join. You must be added to the church and you're added to the church when you are baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. Realizing that I was not a member of the church before I was baptized and now that I have been, I've been baptized into one body by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Next, we become children of God. In John chapter three, verses three through five, Jesus talked about the new birth, remember? He was telling Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot be in the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, well, how can a man be born again? Then Jesus says in John three, verse five, he says, unless a man is born of water and the spirit, he cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You're born again when you're baptized. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Galatians 3, and I want you to look at this passage with me. Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29. Some passages that may be well familiar to many of us, but still deserve our serious contemplation. We need to be reminded of things like this. We need to have it solidified in our hearts and our minds. This is God's plan. This is not something we're making up. This is not something that we just decided was important. This is what his word says. And we're gonna do what his word says because we take him seriously and we take his authority seriously. Look at Galatians 3 verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What's he saying? You are a son of God, and the reason you're a son of God is because you have faith. And the way that we know you have faith is because you decided to be baptized into Christ Jesus, and you have put on Christ when you did that. You see the connection? Faith, baptism, becoming a child of God, all happen at the same moment, the same point in time. We become children of God when we're baptized. 
again, as you're looking at this passage, you become a person who is in Christ. I was out of Christ before I was baptized. Then I was immersed for the remission of my sins and I became a person who is in Christ. That's what the Bible says, doesn't it? You put on Christ when you were baptized. As many of you, of you as have done that have put him on. Not only do we become some things when we're baptized, but we receive some things. You get some things that you didn't have before. When you decide to be baptized, one of its effects is that you become saved. You remember what Jesus said back in Mark 16, 16? He who believes and is baptized will be saved. 1 Peter 3, 21, wherefore baptism does now also save us. What are you saying, John? Are you saying that we don't need the blood of Jesus? Are you saying that what Jesus did at the cross is really kind of a secondary importance, that baptism is really the main thing? That is absolutely not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the only way we're saved is by what Jesus did for us at the cross, by the blood that he shed. However, the when, the W-H-E-N, is answered by baptism. When does the blood of Jesus contact your life when you decide to be baptized for the remission of your sins. How? How am I saved? I'm saved by the cross. When? When am I saved? I'm saved when I decide to be baptized and submit to God's will. Remission of sins, Acts 2 verse 38, you receive that. Remission. Sins are canceled. Debts are forgiven. God looks at us as if we've never sinned because we responded to him and the blood of Jesus has washed away our sins. We receive cleansing and washing. Why do you tarry? Saul of Tarsus was asked. Arise, be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord, Acts 22, verse 16. Jesus has saved his church by the washing of water with the word, Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 27. When we are baptized, we receive a cleansing. We receive a washing from our sins. Your sins, your iniquities can be forgiven today if you'll just submit to God's will, if you'll just do what God's word teaches. The Bible says we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, when we're baptized. We are sons of God because we are his sons. He has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Galatians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 things we did not have before we were baptized that we receive when we are baptized. There's more that could be added to this list. Continuing as we think about effects, not only do we receive some things and not only are some things changed in our lives, but we do some things differently. When we're baptized, the Bible says that we begin to walk in what the Bible calls newness of life. Newness of life. Romans chapter six, verse four, we are raised to walk in newness of life. Why is it new? It's new because we're forgiven, but it's also new because now I think of myself, now that I've been baptized, I think of myself as a child of God. And I think of myself as a servant of Jesus Christ. And I wake up every day and I'm gonna serve my Lord. I'm gonna be his representative wherever I go, whether it be to work or to school or whether I'm walking around the neighborhood, I am his servant. It's a new life and we walk in that life. When we become Christians, God expects for us to assemble with and to participate with other New Testament Christians. 
just for your homework this afternoon, read the last part of Acts chapter 2. After Acts chapter 2, verse 41, the emphasis from verse 42 to verse 47 is on togetherness. It's on unity. It's on assembling and being a part of the body. They had all things in common. They continued steadfastly. They continued daily from house to house, eating bread, sharing with one another. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, Acts 2, verse 47. When we're baptized, we begin to put God's kingdom first. That's his expectation. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, Jesus says. When you're baptized, you're part of the kingdom now. And seeking his kingdom and his righteousness becomes our priority. It becomes our emphasis. It becomes our focus. Everything else we used to do, all of that takes secondary importance to the kingdom and to serving Jesus Christ. We are obligated as Christians to work with fellow believers. Not as spectators, not as people who just stand off around the, around the perimeter, but people who get actively involved in the work of the local church. And there are many, many ways to do that. John 17, verses 20 through 22, Jesus prayed for unity among believers. He prayed that all those who had obeyed his word through the teachings of the apostles would be one. And that's still our prayer today. We believe that if we just got this question right, if we just, th this question, what must I do to be saved? If we just answered that the Bible way, if we just gave Bible answers to that question, we believe we would be so much farther down the road toward true unity, the unity Jesus prayed for. It would be something that would be remarkable if everybody just said to the answer of the question, what must I do to be saved? Hear God's word, believe in Jesus, repent, be baptized. This is what God has commanded. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that was the way the question was answered? You know, when I was about 13 years old, I had a friend who was a member of a denomination and he invited me to go to Six Flags Over Texas. 13 year olds love Six Flags Over Texas. Not so much when you're in your 40s, but you, you know, but, but, but I liked it. And so I thought, okay, sure, I'll go. And as we were on the bus on the way to Six Flags, it's a pretty good ride from where we lived. The pastor of his denominational group stood up on the bus and, and kind of gave a little lesson. And then he had us all bow our heads. He said, I want everybody to put your head down so you can't see anybody else. And so we all did. And he said, if you know that you're not a Christian right now, would you raise your hand? I was 13. I wasn't a Christian. I hadn't been baptized. I raised my hand. And then he said, if you'd like to talk to somebody about how to become a Christian, would you keep your hand up? I put my hand down. I wasn't ready to talk to this guy about becoming a Christian because I was pretty sure, I didn't know a lot in those days, but I was pretty sure he wasn't going to give me a Bible answer to what I must do to be saved. Isn't it interesting that such a fundamental foundational question, isn't it interesting that that's the issue, that that's the, that's, that's the answer that so many people give and they say, well, what does it really matter if you just follow Jesus? Doesn't the authority of God's word matter? Doesn't what he says matter? Aren't we going to take him seriously? All these passages we've looked at this morning, and there are more, we've just scratched the surface. All of these passages teach baptism is the seminal event in which someone who is lost becomes saved. Someone who is outside of Christ is made to be in Christ. That's what baptism does. 
we need those convictions in our hearts because there are people who think they're saved and are not. They haven't come to Christ in the way that his word prescribes. There are some objections. No doubt the, the man on the bus that I just described, no doubt he would bring some of these up. Three objections. Some people say, isn't baptism a form of salvation by works? After all, the Bible says we're not saved by works. It says, by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So, you can't earn your salvation. You can't be, work your way to salvation. And all you're doing in churches of Christ is you're teaching salvation by works when you say that baptism is essential. By way of response, in John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus himself said that faith, faith is a work. To hear God's word is one thing, but then to agree and believe that what God's word says is true. I'm going to follow that. Even just to agree, Jesus says that's work. Isn't that interesting? Moreover, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, the Bible says that we are as Christians to possess a faith that works through love. If our faith is real, if our faith is genuine, it will do something. It's not enough just to have mental assent. Yes, I believe the things that Jesus has done for me are true, and I believe that he saved me. It's not enough just to have mental assent. We must obey. We must submit. And I would liken it to this. In Joshua chapter 6, the children of Israel marched around Jericho all those times because God told them to. And when they did what God requested, God is the one who made the walls fall down flat. Now, question, did the Israelites save Jericho or destroy Jericho by their own merit, by their own ingenuity? Absolutely not. All the Israelites did was to accept a gift that God had already offered. I'm going to give you this city, Israelites. Just do what I ask. Were they saved by works? Absolutely not. They submitted and they obeyed and they accepted the offer. What baptism is, brothers and sisters and friends, baptism is accepting the offer that Jesus has made to every one of us at the cross. It's saying, it's reaching our hand up and saying, I accept the gift. I want to be a part of the kingdom of God. I want the forgiveness of my sins. I want to be a part of the church that Jesus died to save. It's accepting God's offer, submitting and obeying his will. Second objection. Well, what about all those passages in the New Testament that say we're saved by faith? When you put your faith in Jesus, that's how you're saved. After all, John 3:16, one of the most famous passages in all the Bible says, whoever believes in him, that's faith, should not perish but have eternal life. Isn't that all you need? Don't you just need that one verse, John 3, 16? Just believe in Jesus and you won't perish and have eternal life. By the way, when you get to John 3, 16, I believe Jesus presupposes that you've already read John 3, verse 5, which says, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's like 11 verses earlier. But secondly, Faith that is true faith is faith that acts, it works, it obeys, it submits. It says, I will do whatever God requests. 
The only passage in the entire New Testament that says faith alone is the passage that says we are not saved by faith alone. James chapter two, verse 19, James chapter two, verse 24, James chapter two, verse 26. So we see that we are saved by works, by our obedience and not by faith only. It's not enough just to have a faith like the demons. The demons believe, but they do not obey. God wants our obedience in a, in a company with, with our faith. Third objection, what about that thief on the cross? In Luke 23, verses 40 through 43, Jesus was crucified between two thieves and one of them confessed that Jesus Christ was Lord and said, repent, uh, I, I repent. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to that thief, he said, assuredly I say to you today, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Well, he wasn't baptized. Why should I have to be baptized? If that thief could be saved, why should I have to do what you say, what the Bible says about baptism? The answer is found in the fact that the thief lived and died under a different law, a different covenant. Hebrews chapter eight, verse 13. Jesus by his death ushered in a new and a better covenant. We are not saved under the old law. We are not saved under the Old Testament system. We're saved in the New Testament, the new covenant. And not only that, but in Mark chapter two, verses nine and 10, Jesus said, the son of man, talking about himself, has power on earth to forgive sins. The son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. What that means in Mark 2, 9 and 10 is that Jesus, while he was on earth, could forgive sins any way he wanted to. Any way he wanted to. But now he has ascended to his father's throne and he has sent by the mouth of the apostles this command. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Can we help you this morning to obey the gospel? Do you need to respond to him in submissive, obedient faith, believing that you're outside of Christ and that when you come to Christ through baptism, you can be made right? If we can help you obey the gospel this morning, if we can pray for you, won't you make your way forward while together we stand and while we sing?